Hello and welcome to the Currency Exchange, NatWest Markets FX podcast. We break down the major themes and events driving currency markets in this week and the week ahead. Today I'm joined by Brian Dangerfield, who is our US head of G10 FX strategy. And we are doing almost a revisit of last week's US special. Uh, we did a number of events in the US this week um, that took the market's attention. Brian, I know we spoke last week about, you know, how unusual it is that actually the Treasury's kind of quarterly refinancing announcement is actually a big market event. But I guess it shows you that in this environment of historically very elevated sovereign borrowing costs, that even for a reserve currency like the USD, it has an impact. Brian, take us through the event itself and, you know, what was actually your read of it? Thanks very much for having me, Emir. So, a background for those who listened last week, we were thinking about the refunding announcement in a bit more depth in terms of FX markets. So for FX markets, we're not normally all that fussed with the specifics of how Treasury announces its refunding. So for, for background here, uh, Treasury announces uh, a require, uh, borrowing estimates and then the refunding, which took place this past Wednesday, is when Treasury tells uh, the market how it intends to meet those financing uh, financing demands. Are they going to be increasing T-bill issuance? Are they going to be increasing two-year bond auction sizes? Are they going to be increasing 30-year bond auction sizes? And so for the treasury markets, of course, this makes a pretty significant deal, whether or not treasury is awaiting their finances, uh, you know, their financing needs further in the long end versus the front end makes a pretty big difference in terms of the shape of the yield curve. But for FX, it's not usually a first order driver. But we felt this week we have to probably make an exception because of the overall yield environment that we've been in, where longer term yields have been under significant upside pressure, with one of the drivers of that upside pressure concern about supply and demand. The supply of bonds uh, hitting the market is going up because you know the Fed is no longer purchasing, they're letting their balance sheet run down, deficits are rising, and there's concern about whether or not there's enough demand uh, to meet that increased supply. And so when you have a supply demand imbalance, that pushes yields higher. And so for long-term bond yields, had, which had risen significantly since the previous quarterly refunding three months ago, we came into this refunding thinking about how Treasury would respond uh, or if they would respond at all to the change in market conditions in their refunding announcement. And so there was certainly some speculation going in that Treasury may consider tempering the pace of increases in their coupon auction sizes for long-term tenors, the gain 10 and 30 years specifically, relative to the August refunding. And that's exactly what they did. They actually did reduce those. And Treasury made it clear throughout their, uh, throughout their discussions, uh, the TBAC minutes, their full, um, all, their full sort of referenced materials, that this decision was made with market conditions in mind. And that's a pretty important distinction from what we're used to from Treasury, which tends to not, not that they don't take market conditions in mind, but they try and act in a a sort of predictable manner that when they signal to the market back in August, at the August refunding, that coupon sizes were likely to continue to increase at similar rates that they did at that time, that sent the market a pretty clear signal that they probably weren't going to be tweaking auction size increases um, in a meaningful way at this refunding. But they actually did lower these long-term auction size increases uh, with an eye towards market conditions. There was a full discussion of term premium, whether or not there were structural changes in demand for long-term yields. It's something the Treasury should be responding to. Um, And so that's quite significant because, you know, we think about from the dollar side and from the, the rate side, 
When authorities react to markets, that's an important sort of potential sea change type moment. We've seen that with the Fed, where the Fed has internalized market conditions in its own discussions. We'll touch on the Fed in a second, uh, but it's it's very clear that um, market conditions, higher rates have influenced the way they're thinking about near-term policy. Now you can add Treasury into that group of you know, uh, you know, institutions that are clearly taking market developments into account and making decisions about how much supply of particular tenors to add to the market. So the reason we felt this was going to be so important for FX markets was because long-term yields, the rise in long-term yields has been so significant as a part of the a part of the sort of positive dollar cocktail, essentially, that you have higher long-term yields are bad for market volatility. Um, there and as a result, can be good for the dollar from that perspective. Um, and so, the decision by Treasury to react to market conditions to announce that they were going to increase their coupon auction sizes by less is something that injected a little bit of uh, positivity back into long-term bond markets. And long-term yields have fallen pretty sharply over the last couple of sessions here. And with it, the dollar has lost a little bit of its uh, of its luster. And so. We know the market is very closely tracking long-term yields um, as a driver of broader dollar sentiment and broader macro sentiment. And so Treasury making the decision it did um, to sort of internalize some of these market conditions and say, you know what, maybe we shouldn't be increasing auction sizes as much as we previously signaled because long-term yields have moved up so much. Um, that's been an important driver. Now, we shouldn't say that the you know, long-end bonds are completely out of the woods, right? I don't think you necessarily say this is a moment for a big, uh, a big thematic reversal. You still have economic data in the U.S. that's performing generally pretty well, um, and there are still concerns um, about longer-term supply and demand that don't go away. The deficits are still high; they still need these still need to be financed. These concerns are still here, but the way Treasury responded in the near term has injected a little bit of positivity. And you know, with the market seeming to not really have a lot of buyers at the moment, that's been uh, an important source of stability uh, for long-term yields. Yeah, I guess on that point, you know, one of the longer term drivers of the Treasury market is, of course, the Fed and its decision. And we did have Wednesday, the Fed keeping rates on hold for the second consecutive meeting. What was your read of that decision? So going into that decision, we were thinking that this was going to be pretty much a placeholder meeting because the Fed has been signaling pretty consistently that uh, tightening in financial market conditions, specifically higher long term rates, is something that maybe takes pressure off of them to hike the policy rate anymore. Uh, and that was really the, the main tone, the main crux of what Powell told us in his October 19th speech before the Economics Club of New York. And it was also the main crux of the message at the FOMC press conference uh, on November 1st. And so the FOMC decision itself didn't really ruffle a lot of feathers. Uh, and that was widely as expected. The Fed's gone through great pains to signal this message very clearly that they didn't think they needed to hike at this meeting uh, and that the outlook for hiking, the, uh, the outlook for additional tightening uh, may have changed based on the uh, change in financial conditions. As we were listening to the press conference, we did get the sense that Powell is hopeful that the Fed tightening cycle is over. He seemed to be uh, unwilling to commit to language calling the December, the upcoming December meeting as a live meeting. He was asked a couple of times point blank if it was a live meeting and he tried to dodge that language, maybe trying to get away from this idea that every meeting they're going to be debating the specifics of whether or not they'll be hiking rates. Get away. There was also an interesting discussion of the dot plot where Powell was also asked, if you remember at the September meeting, uh, Powell was, uh, you know, Powell and the Fed penciled in one more rate hike as their modal forecast. For the end of uh, before the end of this year, 
He was asked about that at this November meeting, and he the questioner basically asked, is this something that's still in the forecast? You guys put one more hike in as your projection uh, heading into December. Should we still think that that's the outlook? And he was very cagey on this, essentially saying that the efficacy of the dot plot goes down as you move away from that specific point in time meeting. So instead of embracing what the dot plot in September had told us, that one more hike was more likely than not. He seems a little bit more cagey in trying to project that. And so maybe a hint from Powell that the committee's preference would be that the data allows them to not hike the policy rate in December, not hike the policy rate anymore. They certainly didn't leave. Uh, they certainly left open the option to hike again if needed. Uh, but we got the sense that the Fed is probably leaning towards um, not hiking at the December meeting. And it would take overwhelming data uh, to push them in that direction. Now, nobody can rule that out. Um, the data have been consistently surprising to the top side. Um, you know, you've had resilience. You know, we just had a 5%, a nearly 5% GDP reading for the third quarter, uh, almost all of that fueled by very, very strong consumers. So you can't rule it out. But uh, we didn't think Powell was going to ruffle a lot of feathers uh, at this meeting. And for the dollar, uh, he, you know, it didn't really make a big difference. The biggest change that we've seen is that you've seen longer term yields have found some stability and recovery here with the treasury refunding and the changes they made being the biggest driver of that. And so the dollar edged lower a little bit here. Get away. And has any of this kind of changed your broad outlook for the dollar or confirmed it more? Get away. So for the dollar, we're still thinking a lot about relative growth. Relative yields are a very big part of uh, our dollar outlook. And so if you find that stability in longer term yields, that probably can take some of the pressure the upside pressure off of the dollar in the near term. Uh, but the economic data have still been very strong in the U.S. and they've been weak pretty much everywhere else. When you look across Europe, uh, the purchasing managers index that we've been getting in Europe have been weak. Um, in China, they were also a bit softer than expected uh, as well. Whereas here in the U.S., they've generally been strong. We did have a weak reading on the ISM manufacturing uh, measure this week, which is certainly one to note. But the broad scope of the data, the totality of the data, as the Fed might call it, has been quite strong. And so for the dollar, we have to balance this relative growth against relative rates. Uh, relative growth continues to suggest the dollar can remain supported. Uh, and rate markets have, you know, for most of the last couple of, uh, couple of months, really, have been under pretty significant upside pressure. So it remains to be seen whether these moves lower in interest rates can be sustained. Um, and I think that's going to be the key as we look ahead. Um, you know, into the end of the year is this data has been very strong. If it remains strong, that can help keep the dollar supported. And we'll have to also watch these uh, these interest rate developments, particularly in the long end, if these uh, at least the last couple of days of lower long term rates can be sustained. And I have to draw you on another central bank meeting that we had this week and a central bank is probably in the complete opposite monetary policy trajectory than the Fed, which is the Bank of Japan. A lot of expectations going into this that they would shift away from yield curve control, which it looks like they did. But the yen probably didn't react like most market participants thought it would. Yeah, that's right. So, you know, we talked in the pod last week about uh, the possibility of a change in yield curve control and the efficacy of that change. Um, and I thought the odds of that were pretty good with the idea that so the Bank of Japan has a yield curve control policy where they uh, set a 1% cap on the 10-year JGB yield. And uh, their effective policy was that this is a level that would be defended um, with potentially unlimited purchases. They set that level back in July. And at the time in July, the original, um, the, the, the target, the, the, the upside cap had been 50 basis points, so half a percent. 
at the time in July, they decided they did not want to be forced into the market to defend a level that was going to be tested frequently, that in that case, 50 basis points. And so they increased that top end of their tolerance range to 1%. They came into the meeting this week with 10-year JGBs at 95 basis points or so. So they were once again faced with a, with a bit of a conundrum, which was, do you need to, are you willing to defend that 1% level that you set back in July with potentially unlimited purchases? And the answer once again was no. So what the Bank of Japan did was they made a change, a subtle but important change to their, to their yield curve control strategy, which they set the reference rate for uh, 10-year GGB uh, potential purchases at 1% rather than half a percent or from previous, uh, the, the official target is still zero, although that's not... Uh, uh, particularly relevant for the for the current market discussion. So what does this mean? This is a small but important change. When yield curve control sets a level at which yields can't trade above, but then every time it gets to that level, that level is adjusted to allow it to trade above it, yield curve control doesn't look so much like yield curve control anymore. Uh, and this is part of the process towards the end of yield curve control, in my opinion. That effectively, uh, you know, you think about it like FX intervention, right? If you, you're thinking about a currency floor, um, if every time you were bumping up against the floor, they were moving the level, then that's not really an effective floor, is it? So from the Bank of Japan perspective, this is an important change because they are allowing more market termination, determination in, in JGB yields. But what they did not do was make any meaningful changes in, in short-term yield policy. They continue to take on a fairly dovish stance. Um, and the market sort of took that combination of a small, important, but maybe more subtle than expected change in yield curve control, along with unchanged policy on the near term. Remember, Bank of Japan still has a negative policy rate in the front end. We've had 500 basis points of tightening in the U.S., still negative policy rate completely unchanged for Bank of Japan. The market took that as a sign of this was not a big enough step in the hawkish direction from the Bank of Japan, and we saw pretty significant weakness in the yen that ensued. Effectively, we broke through the 150 level, which as we've been talking about the last couple of weeks, was a very important level in the market. We weren't as sure whether or not it was a make or break level for the Bank of Japan, but we know it was a make or break level in the market. And so when we broke through that level after the decision, we saw a pretty rapid weakening in the yen, above 150, 150, maybe approaching 152 um, at the extremes. Now it's come back a little bit because US yields have fallen. And maybe that's the most important thing for dollar yen, uh, just to, you know, independently of the Bank of Japan is yield differentials are a significant driver of this currency pair. Um, and from the Bank of Japan perspective, that makes it uh, difficult to uh, um, that makes it difficult to fight against that. Um, uh, so from the relative yield perspective, Bank of Japan, I think, made a subtle change, a needed change. Uh, but it was only a more subtle, nuanced change rather than the big hawkish overture that I think the market may have been hoping for. And in the absence of that change and in the absence of a meaningful evidence of, that the Bank of Japan stepped in with intervention, um, when we broke above 150, that break was, uh, you know, was sort of bought into. Mm -hmm. Do you think, you know, that bar for BOJ to actually intervene in the currency, that that has actually also shifted as well? Yeah, I think it has. And the reason I think it has is because whether or not you think the BOJ decision was hawkish enough, they still made what I consider some important hawkish changes in its, um, in its assessment um, and in its implementation of yield curve control. And as I mentioned, interest rate differentials are pretty significant as a driver of this currency, or at least 
from the perspective of where should it be from a fundamental perspective, relative yields have been very important. And over the last couple of weeks, relative yields have been pushing in favor of the yen, even as it breached 151 on the top side and sort of tested these uh, new highs for 2023, U.S. yields have been coming off of their extremes. That's continued over the last couple of sessions, thanks to what's happened with the refunding and uh, some more uh, some of the data that we've seen this week. But dollar yen, when it extended in the aftermath of the BOJ, that was happening despite the fact that relative yields were actually moving lower, uh, U.S. yields lower, Japanese yields higher, sort of in favor of yen from the traditional relationship perspective. And so that made it very interesting to me when um, uh, Mr. Kanda from the uh, Ministry of Finance in Japan came out uh, earlier this week and said some of the moves we're seeing are starting to look out of line with fundamentals, which is the kind of warning that is quite significant. When when you think about what are the conditions for intervention, there's probably two soft conditions that you feel like probably need to be met for officials to really step in and intervene. The first one being they see the move as out of line with fundamentals. The second one, they see the move as being excessive. From the fundamentals perspective, if you're just looking at relative rates, which is a big part of dollar yen, but it's certainly not the only part, those have been moving more in favor of yen, at least recently, um, even as dollar yen extended higher. So that was something that line from, uh, from Conda was quite significant. Um, because of the way relative yields have moved. And then the other one is whether the moves are excessive. And I think you could call the scope of the move, I believe it was the largest up move in dollar yen since April that we saw in the aftermath of the BOJ. Uh, you could call the scope of that move maybe a bit more excessive. And so uh, the sort of leaning in the direction of, uh, of what you would call an excessive move, especially when yield differentials have been moving in the other direction. So um, I think the bar here for FX intervention has probably fallen. Now, is the BOJ going to be bailed out essentially by what's happening with long-term rates in the U.S.? That remains to be seen um, if the yen can find some support just from what's happening here in the U.S. Uh, but I think the bar for intervention has probably come down even further, even though we haven't actually seen confirmed intervention from them yet uh, since this time last year. Yeah, I know you made a great point last week. And just that, you know, Bank of Japan are real victims of this kind of massive sell-off that we've seen in the long end of U.S. yield curves. And just they've got the wrong easy monetary policy mix um, just for these market conditions. Brian, thank you so much for joining me again. And um, that is about all we have time for this week. Do remember to click subscribe and to like if you enjoyed the podcast. Thanks again for joining us.